0: Hi, and thanks for listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're starting a new series of messages today called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. If you've listened to Christian teaching much, you've probably heard the definition of grace as unmerited favor. Well, that's a good definition, but does it tell us all we need to know? Is there more to the story? Today, John Fonville looks at grace from a different angle and shows us that grace is also the saving power from Jesus, and it's what gives his followers power to live the Christian life. Here's part one of Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness.
1: Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And let me just review with you just a little bit to bring you back up to speed. But in Titus chapter 2, What we have seen is that the subject matter in this little letter changes from chapter one on church leadership to chapter two, Paul is focusing for us on church membership, what it looks like to be a member of the church, to be a Christian in the church. So having just set forth the virtues of godly church membership in chapter two, verses two through 10, Paul now is going to reveal for us the source from where these virtues come. In verses 11 through 14. Now the context of verses 11 through 14 goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says some false Jewish teachers who had brought a false gospel into the church, which was overturning and destroying the church. He describes these false teachers as those who profess to know God. They profess to be Christians, to have salvation. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. So listen carefully. Separating salvation from subsequent obedience in life lies at the core of the false teacher's unorthodox teaching. Simply put, Paul's opponents are guilty of license. License is as destructive to the gospel and the church as is legalism. License and legalism are both threats to and destructive of the gospel. And so, driven by greed, chapter 1, verse 11, these false teachers, their character and their conduct were epitomizing, embodying in the churches the worst of creed and cultural vices. That's what Paul says in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, where he quotes Epimenides, the poet, and he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. He's speaking of the false teachers. By their teaching and by their character, Paul says that they were exercising a negative licentious influence on the whole church. And because of that, as we looked at, some of the church members had begun embracing a licentious, indulgent Cretan lifestyle. So the culture, the fallen culture had infiltrated into the church these false teachers. And so what Paul was doing, he was assigning Titus the task of bringing order to these churches. And part of the task of bringing order to these churches was to help the church members break away from this licentious, indulgent lifestyle, and instead, chapter two, verse one, live a life that is in accordance with sound doctrine. And that's what he's teaching in chapter two, what it looks like to live in a life in accordance with the gospel. And so these creden false teachers. We're negatively influencing the church. So, for example, back in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, with the younger women, we saw in context that some of the young women had embraced the new Roman woman paradigm, which was just say, throw all restraint and and sexual restraint to the wind and just indulge yourself in the vices of culture. Because this is what it is to be a woman. And we saw that this is not the ideal woman. It is actually the opposite of what the gospel produces in a young woman's heart. So this is what Paul's doing. He is, he is calling upon all the members of the church, regardless of their age, gender, or legal social status, to pursue godliness and their ordinary daily life. Ordinary daily living, you are to pursue godliness. And so his ethical instructions in verses 2 through 10 are not to be ignored by church members. They're not to be marginalized by church members. They're not to be shoved off and said, oh, I'm covered by grace, so if I don't live like this, it's okay, it's not okay. It's never okay to indulge in sin. And this is what Paul's teaching us. He's saying that all church members, chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, have a responsibility. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to live a godly life. And the gospel is not a license to give you an excuse not to. Godly virtue by those who profess to know God, Paul says three times, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 10, three times. It results in adorning the gospel and commending the gospel in a favorable light to those who are watching the church. So here's the question with all that context to come up to verses 11 through 14. How is it possible to live that kind of a godly life and such an ungodly culture that has such powerful pressure to live the opposite way? where does this kind of godliness come from? In other words, how does Paul combat the error of license? He's going to give us the answer in verses 11 through 14. So let's read it because verses 11 through 14, along with chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, forms the heart of this letter. So listen to the answer that he gives. Here's how you live a godly life. Here's the answer. Here's how you combat the error of license. He's going to teach us. Listen. He says, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own, own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is a powerful, powerful passage of scripture. Let me just give you a little bit of insight before we look at it. Verses 11 through 14 is one long, complex sentence in the Greek. So if you're a Bible expositor and you're trying to diagram this sentence, it is hard. <laughs> So it's one long sentence that just keeps going and going because Paul is so enthralled with the gospel. This is what he does all over the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, it's one long sentence. And then verses 15 to the end of chapter 1, one long sentence. He does this all the time. He makes grammar class very difficult. But here's the point. God's. This is one long sentence that says, God's grace is the sole subject of this sentence. The grace of God. We'll come back to that. The participle, if you know grammar, in verse 12, training or teaching or educating controls the whole direction of this one big sentence. The subject is the grace of God. The whole direction is training, education, And the conjunction for, look at verse 11, the first word for ties together verses 2 through 10 and verses 11 to 14, so that Paul is now introducing the theological foundation upon which all his ethical instructions to you that you're supposed to do, he rests all of that on verses 11 through 14. Simply put, let me just take all that together and just say it simple for you. Paul is teaching us that the source of all godly living is the grace of God. The source, the empowerment, the enablement of all godly living that he talks about in verses 2 through 10, the way that comes about and happens comes about from the grace of God because the grace of God educates us to do this. All of the previously mentioned virtues are the effects of the education of grace. So let me just, before we move on and look at this in more detail, let me just give you this important observation, which we'll come back to at the end. It is essential to understand that those who are guilty of license are guilty of one of two things. One, either they don't believe the gospel at all, which is the false teacher's, Or two, they don't have a proper understanding of the gospel, which is the Cretan church. In either case, listen carefully, the remedy that Paul provides to correct the error of license, I can break the rules and it doesn't matter, that the remedy he gives for this error is the grace of God. He does not give any law at all. As the remedy for license, he gives the grace of God. To say it another way, Paul teaches that the gospel is the power of God for sanctification as well as justification. God's grace both redeems and purifies. God's grace is the solution, Paul says, for our guilt and our corruption. In contrast to the false teachers who separate their theology from their ethics, Paul says you cannot separate theology from ethics. You distinguish, you do not separate. Consequently, one of the biggest problems in the church is a failure to properly distinguish without separating. You have to distinguish but never separate Jesus' humanity from his deity. If you separate them, then you have heresy you have to distinguish them, but never separate them. The same is true in salvation here. You distinguish theology, gospel from ethics, law. You don't separate them, but you distinguish them. But Paul's teaching that sound doctrine leads to godly living. In other words, he's saying that the educating grace of God is the wellspring of all godliness. Paul wants us to know that the saving work of God's grace has the power not only to justify, chapter 3, verse 7, but it also has the power to sanctify, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Why? It has the power to take us from living an ungodly life to begin living a godly life. What is godliness? We saw that godliness is God-centeredness. It is reverence in relationship to God which expresses itself in holiness and ordinary daily life. And so the nature of godliness, being God-centered, having reverence for God, having holiness in your ordinary daily life requires the believer to understand the grace of God. The gospel. Because the gospel is given not just for justification, but also for sanctification. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul begins his letter by teaching that godliness, as defined in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, that kind of godliness is rooted in and flows from continually moving on in the knowledge of the truth. God's educating grace is powerfully active, Paul says, in the knowledge of the truth. You have to hear the gospel over and over and over again, because hearing that story is what transforms you. This morning, we looked at these questions. Why must Jesus be a true and righteous man, our mediator? Why must he be a true and righteous man? This is about the gospel. Why must he be a true and righteous man? If you can't answer that, you can't grow in godliness. Why must he be at the same time true God? Who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? And from where do you know all this? You see, Paul says you have God's transforming grace is powerfully active, rooted in from continually moving on in the gospel, the knowledge of the truth. You don't begin the Christian life with the gospel and move on to something else. You start with the gospel, and then you continually move in it deeper and deeper and deeper, and you never stop moving in the knowledge of the truth because that is what transforms your life from ungodliness to godliness. This is what Paul is teaching. So he firmly grounds the virtuous Christian life in the education of grace. Here's the very important insight about that. Only the grace of God will bring transformation to the church. In his book, The Romance of Grace, listen to what Jim McNeely writes. He says, grace... Grace is the essential foundation for true virtue. If you are serious about personal transformation, sustainable, behavioral, heart-level holiness, you need to know that you are not going to get even close to that holiness without grace. Your flesh is a unicycle to Hong Kong, while grace is a Mach 5 fighter jet. In other words, you're not going to get to Hong Kong on your unicycle. This is not going to happen. And so here's what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He highlights four saving actions of God's grace. Four saving actions of God's grace, which all four actions are continually educating believers to pursue godliness in their ordinary daily life. And all these saving actions that we're going to look at encompass the past, present, and future. So let's look at verse 11, and let's look this week at the first saving action. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at the end of verse 10. There's the phrase, God our Savior. Verses 11 through 14 elaborate the designation God our Savior. God is a God who saves. And Paul now in verses 11 through 14 is going to teach us about God our Savior, the God who actually saves. And he begins by teaching that the basis of godly living is grounded in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The historical event of Jesus' appearing, the Greek verb epiphino is where we get the English word epiphany, epiphany. January 6th on the liturgical calendar is when the church observes the ancient Christian holy day commonly referred to as epiphany. Could it day back as far as the third century that the church has celebrated the day of epiphany? So the verb has appeared means epiphany. It has appeared. And it conveys this idea of a sudden and surprising appearance of light. Of its entrance for the first time and of its effect in illuminating those in darkness. What has appeared to do this? Paul says it is the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. Paul personifies grace. Listen, the phrase, the grace of God has appeared, points to a past act, namely, the whole of Christ's life, from his incarnation to his ascension. It is the personification of grace. Grace is a one-word summary of the whole of God's saving action in Christ. In his first appearing, Jesus brought the light of salvation to those living in spiritual darkness and in the shadow of death. How do I know that? Listen to Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In his first coming, grace appeared visibly in Jesus Christ. Grace appeared in his birth, in his teaching, in his healing ministry, in his forgiving of sins. And above all of that, in his death, burial, and resurrection. The grace of God that appeared, grace is a person. Who appeared in time and history in the past. And Jesus appeared to make God's saving purposes clearly known to all people. The whole of Jesus' life and his person was and is God's gracious gift to sinners. The grace of God that appeared is a person. It is not a substance Grace is not some kind of substance that you get a spiritual hose hooked up to your heart and from heaven God is pouring some kind of stuff into you to transform you. That's not grace. Nobody Paul's teaching here very clearly is saved or transformed by an impersonal substance. Rather, Grace is the whole of Christ's redemptive work that is applied to your life directly by the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the truth, the gospel. Jesus is the fullest and final and definitive revelation of grace. John teaches the same thing in John chapter 1. Listen to John chapter 1 verses 14, 16, and 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, historical redemptive here. For the law was given historically through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace comes through Jesus Christ because he is the appearance of grace. He is grace. He is the gracious gift from the Father to sinners. And he has appeared and his first coming. And look what Paul says about this first coming. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Do you know what that word means? It means to appear in saving power. Jesus, the grace of God, has appeared in the past with saving power. He brings with him salvation. He has appeared in a way that personifies grace as saving. Salvation is the proper office of Christ. Jesus came to save above all things. In his first coming, Jesus came to be a savior, not a teacher. A teacher informs but does not save, a savior saves. This is an implicit announcement of Jesus' deity, which Paul gets very clear with in verse 13, where he calls him our great God and Savior, because only God can save. And what Paul, you'll see in the weeks ahead, is doing is he is attributing all the works of the Old Testament God, which is Yahweh, Jesus, to Jesus now in the present. And he's saying Jesus is Yahweh from the Old Testament because these were Jewish audiences that he was writing to. This is powerful what Paul is saying. And the angel of the Lord announced to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a Savior above all things, and this is what he appeared for, to powerfully bring salvation to his people. Now, what kind of salvation did he bring? It is very important in this context to understand this that the emphasis on salvation is this, it is the ongoing working of the initial gift of grace that appeared in his life. What does that mean? It means this, Paul's saying, Christ appeared not just to secure our forgiveness, but also to free us from our bondage and corruption. He elaborates this in great detail in verses 12 through 14. But for now, in verse 11, I want you to see this, that the appearance of the grace of God, Jesus is the grace of God. He is the appearance. He brings salvation, which includes justification, chapter 3, verse 7. But this salvation that Paul's talking about in this context is not justification. It is not the forgiveness of sins. It is something more. The salvation Paul is talking about is the salvation from slavery to sin. All people are born into this world, inheriting not only Adam's guilt, but Adam's corruption. And so it is our condition of sin that determines our acts of sin. Therefore, this means we need a mediator who will save us not only from the guilt of sin, but from the enslavement and corruption of sin.
0: Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness, Part 1. More from the series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.